Welcome, 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 welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is your host, Shadi Nabhan, hematologist, oncologist. I have interest in literally everything in healthcare, policy, leadership, mentorship, education, everything you can think about with a focus and a twist in oncology. Today is an interesting episode. It is with Dr. Christopher Booth, a professor and a researcher, health policy researcher in uh, Canada. He is the director of the CCE division at Queen's Cancer Research Institute, medical oncologist, GI oncologist. He's a clinician scientist at the Cancer Center of Southeastern Ontario and a professor in the departments of oncology and medicine at Queen's University. He is the Canada Research Chair in Population Cancer Care. And I am hosting Dr. Booth to talk about conflict of interest. What in the world is conflict of interest? Can we conduct research uh, without conflict of interest? How do we work with the pharmaceutical companies and the pharmaceutical industry uh, and make sure that this work that we do with pharma is not really biased and making physicians blinded to, the, uh, to, to, to what's actually going on in cancer research. Dr. Booth is going to talk to us about this. Apparently, Chris one time had a burger for $80. Now, these are Canadian dollars, and that means they're probably more than US dollars, although at the time, who knows what the Canadian dollar was compared to the US dollar, but $80. And he wrote about this. And I think this was the time where he started thinking about conflict of interest and the impact on some of the payments that are being received to the clinical care. So we will talk about this. Uh, and I think this is a very important topic. It is discussed a lot on social media. And as usual, Healthcare Unfiltered tackles the important topics that we hear about and are important to patient care. So don't forget, by the way, to watch all of these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Naban and Healthcare Unfiltered. You must and you need to subscribe, rate, review, and refer your friends and colleagues to the show. I would be forever grateful if you do that. I would really appreciate that. And if you write a brief review, this actually will help make sure other folks are able to identify and see the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan. Visit my website, chadinabhan.com. And don't forget to uh, send me any of uh, any comments and feedback. Without further ado, the infamous, who is not on Twitter, Dr. Chris Booth on Healthcare on Twitter. Well, he's back which means I did not mess up the first time around, which is good. Although, you know, I've attempted sending Chris a t-shirt and it got stolen by the Canadian customs. It's not by the American, definitely not by the American customs. So I'm sending him another one uh, later this week. Um, and I'm going to put like on the envelope a label, uh, hands off, please. Chris, uh, welcome back to Healthcare Unfiltered. Um, in the rare circumstance that somebody did not listen to the first episode, which would be a disaster, by the way, if they haven't, maybe a little bit about you and an introduction, because the topic today is going to be really exciting. Thanks, Chadi. Uh, 
thank you very much for having me back on the show. And a bit of background, I think uh, the way we should tell the story about the missing T-shirt is that healthcare unfiltered is such a hot commodity right now north of the border in Canada. Like you, these T-shirts are highly, highly desired. So you should not have gone on the air or told all your friends you're mailing a T-shirt to Booth in Canada because there's a lot of Canadians that want those shirts. So I think we'll need to notify the Mounties, uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, to keep an eye out to make sure I get my T-shirt. And I'll wear it with pride. But in any case, Thanks for having me back. Um, so I'm a medical oncologist, uh, professor of oncology at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. I split my time between the Cancer Centre, where I look after patients with GI cancer, and I run a health services research program in the other uh, part of my time, uh, where I'm interested in issues of access to care, quality of care outcomes, working with real-world data. As we talked about last time, I also have a major interest in the value of cancer care, magnitude of benefit, and have um, done work in that space in, at the global policy level with the World Health Organization and, and close friends and colleagues in India and beyond. So I look forward to our discussion today. Thanks for having me back. I have to tell you, I'm honestly truly fascinated how much you do, um, but just beyond just simply taking care of patients. It, it, it's really a lot of work, so kudos to you which means you're good in time management. But today we're gonna to focus on two topics. One is the general topic of conflict of interest. So we have to define it and what it means because it's too much on social media with this. And I'm gonna, by the way, I'm not gonna let you go today without talking why you're not on Twitter. And, um, and the second thing is, um, you know, research with pharma. Sometimes there's a lot of backlash that, that I hear, I see about, you know, how do you work with pharma and do research with them and all of these things. So um, two could be contentious topics, at least they are contentious on social media. So you're doing good by staying away for now. Tell me about conflict of interest. What, 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 is there a definition? I mean, what is conflict of interest in biomedicine? Okay, well, you opened with a tough question, Chatty. So, I mean, the way I conceptualize this is as physicians and oncologists, our primary duty is to look after patients. And these patients are very sick and they're often very vulnerable. And we're seeing them at a moment in their life where they really need our undivided attention and help. And so, I guess one could conceptualize a conflict of interest would be if there's any other external force that might influence decision making that would not allow us to. Uh, fulfill our primary mandate, which is to look after patients. Um, so there can be a number of different conflicts of interest. And I think the one I'm sure that we're going to talk about primarily today is the concept of financial conflict of interest. And um, this is something that I've had, you know, an interesting personal journey, but I wrote about it uh, with one of my mentors from training uh, in an essay in the British Medical Journal three or four years ago. And the title of the paper was something along, along the lines of um, managing financial conflicts of interest in oncology, tales of the $80 hamburger or something like that. And it had to do with um, uh, a hamburger that I had as a resident that was $80. Um, and, and so I trained uh, you know, in the early 2000s at the University of Toronto. Uh, and it was very common at the major medical centers at that time, I think throughout North America to have a lot of engagement with the pharmaceutical industry. We had uh, noon rounds several days a week, uh, again, with excellent teaching, usually by the chief medical resident about approach to diabetic ketoacidosis or lung cancer or whatever, blackboard sessions that were really excellent. And there was always free sandwiches there and they were delicious sandwiches. And I was a junior resident, enjoyed them. I didn't really do the math to think about who was paying for those sandwiches. Um, and, and, uh, and then later on, as I 
became uh, uh, training uh, in oncology, there became more opportunities to go to these meetings and these conferences. And I was getting given very expensive textbooks and we would have journal clubs once a month. And these journal clubs were, you know, the, the residents and the faculty would choose the paper uh, and it would be dissected with, you know, critical appraisal and a discussion. But it, these events were held at like the nicest restaurants in Toronto um, that uh, as, as a lowly resident, we never would have gone to. And, and so this, you know, blew our minds. We went there and there was actually an $80 hamburger on the menu. And so, $80. $80 hamburger chatty. I mean, I, I don't know if this is like an only a high end Canadian thing, but I suspect you could find an $80 burger in your neighborhood as well. If you look hard enough, uh, maybe we'll have to go find one together one day. Uh, but I'll make you pay for it. It'll be the podcast that'll pay for it. Um, I'll wear your T-shirt. It'll be good advertising. But, but in any case, um, so I kind of lived maybe somewhat naively through that era. And I guess that the, the time when I started to feel a little uncomfortable was at a cancer center, a big cancer center in Toronto. I was seeing patients and a pharmaceutical rep showed up that I'd known. I'd seen at some other events and kind of like pulled me into a patient room and gave me this little spiel and then handed me Davida's textbook. And it just, it felt a little weird. Um, and then I walked in, I was seeing patients. It felt uncomfortable. And I think that was maybe the beginning of me starting to think I was, you know, probably a fourth year resident or fifth year resident at this point. So I started to think that, you know, there's something that just doesn't feel right about this. In any case, as I was finishing my clinical training, and transitioning to uh, well, research fellow and then junior faculty, I had a series of discussions with one of my mentors, an internal medicine physician, a very senior internist in Toronto named Alan Detsky. And um, Alan uh, actually sat me down and basically the gist of the conversation was, you know, I think I told about some of these uncomfortable feelings I had. And he, he, what he said to me, Chatty, was, uh, Chris, conflict of interest in medicine is a major problem. Um, it's not really well recognized yet. Almost everyone in this uh, specialty is conflicted and plays this game. He said, as you're about to launch your career, consider making yourself one of the rare people that have no relationships with the pharmaceutical industry, because one day the world will change and the people who get to lead trials, write guidelines, write editorials will be those physicians that have no financial relationships with pharma. And he said, think about positioning yourself to be one of those people. Um, he said, it'll be a very unorthodox career, but it, it's probably for you, it might be the right thing to do. So it's a really interesting series of conversations. And you know, Alan, uh, you know, was an internist, you know, in the 80s and 90s who gave all sorts of lectures all over the world and got paid very well by pharma to do that and thought that didn't really think much of conflict of interest until I think he published one of the original seminal papers. Uh, it was the first author was uh, Stel Fox, who was a trainee in Toronto at the time in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1999, showing that the, um, the very controversial story of calcium channel blockers where there was no really good data one way or the other to support their use. And they very clearly showed the editorials and commentaries written by physicians who had financial relationships with people, with companies who make calcium channel blockers were much more likely to tell the story in a favorable light compared to physicians without those relationships. And that completely changed Alan's approach. And so in the trend in the 2000s, he transitioned to be a very strong advocate uh, to identify these potential conflicts and, and mitigate or minimize them or, or reduce them if at all possible. So this was um, the beginning of a journey. And, and you know, I was lucky, like I, I'm not a clinical trialist. Um, I'm a health services researcher, so I can function in an academic environment without the need to have, you know, 
rich relationships or, or, or interactions with the pharmaceutical company. So I basically like had zero relationships throughout my entire career, like really zero. And uh, I, and I, I don't, we, we, when we wrote this essay, we were very careful. We didn't want to make this, you know, personal thing, uh, criticize anyone's integrity. This is just kind of uh, a philosophy that I have when it comes to the way that I've, I've launched my career. And I guess it's important to distinguish, you know, engaging with industry is obviously hugely important to advance clinical trials. And there's no way that we would be where we are uh, if there weren't productive uh, and bi-directional relationships between academic oncologists and the pharmaceutical industry to identify new targets, new drugs, and launch clinical trials. So I, I, I'm not proposing a world in which there are not relationships. I think, you know, the research realm is one thing. Um, you know, there's the whole issue about personal payments, and like we'll talk about that later because we've published on it recently. But I guess kind of the, the concern I have is that rather than being an important player in the system, the pharmaceutical industry, I think, now controls the system. They, by virtue of um, finances, they control most of the research agenda in oncology, and that has that has problems. I think. Very excellent points. Uh, appreciate you sharing the perspective. Um, let me go back a little bit to your prior experiences, just in the early days. Clearly, conflict of interest to your earlier definition is when you really make a decision that is conflicted with patient care because of a financial relationship or, the, or another relationship. And I'm gonna talk about a couple of aspects of that. At any point during that time where you were doing the journal club, doing the going to these restaurants and the $80 burger, did you ever feel that you would prescribe something to a patient you were caring for that you did not think was appropriate because you had that burger? No, it's a great question. And the answer is no. Um, so at two levels, Chadi, the first level is because, you know, the sandwiches around, we we're talking about hyponatremia and the approach to heart failure and things like that. So there was no, there was even no, there was no proprietary, um, you know, compound even in discussion. The journal club discussions, we chose the articles and the rep that was paying for, for dinner I don't even think was related to the article. So again, I, and I was so ignorant at that time, I don't even know what company the rep represented. Getting the DeVita textbook, I don't know. I, I can't imagine how that would have influenced my decision-making. And certainly the $80 burger, uh, you know, landed a nice paper in BMJ and I still like telling that story, but I don't think that changed anything. Um, so there's two answers to your question, Chai. First of all, I think the amount of interaction I had and the, the, the type of interaction, it would be difficult to imagine it would have, change in a major way, an interaction with a patient. Um, so that's point number one. Uh, but point number two is that studies have shown over and over again that these interactions do influence physician behavior. They influence even modest financial gifts have been shown repeatedly to influence prescribing. Um, there's uh, very likely to be strong relationships in how editorials are written how guidelines are written. So there's literature that shows that these relationships do influence physician behavior. And the other interesting part of that literature to really answer your question is that when you ask physicians who have these relationships, does it change your 
prescribing, everyone says no, of course it doesn't, but they almost always say, but I think it's a problem for other physicians. And so there's a disconnect there. And so I don't think anyone goes into a patient's room saying, I got $20,000 last year from whatever company, therefore I'm gonna use the drug. I, I think the these influences are more subtle than that. And I think the literature supports that. I would also say, Chatty, that these companies, they're smarter than us as simple oncologists. They're not making these massive investments of literally hundreds of millions of dollars of payments per year to physicians. They're not doing this to make friends. Um, they're doing this because there's a return on investment. And so I think it would be, um, I think it would be overstating it to say that if you go to one drug dinner, you're going to you know, change the way you treat the patient you see tomorrow. But I think it would be naive to assume that there's not some long-term influence of these relationships on how physicians practice. So how is that? I mean, I think when you talk about conflict of interest, there's obviously uh, several layers of that. Because when you go to conferences, when you go to the American, you've been to the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting. Yeah, many times, many times. You've been to the American Society of Hematology meeting. And I think you see that there are really sponsors and exhibit booths that is really filled by the pharmaceutical companies that obviously is giving millions of dollars to the society that you actually belong to and pay membership dues for. So how is it that this is not, how is the ASCO not conflicted getting tens, fifteens, $20 million each meeting, frankly, that, you know, and you're the one who's conflicted because you had dinner. Why, why is there a disconnect, I guess? Why doesn't the society that we paid use for say, you know what? We don't want to have an exhibit hall anymore because we believe the exhibit hall does influence physicians. It seems like there's a disconnect there. Chatty, I agree with you. I think it does. I, I think that um, I think that this is not just related to ASCO, but I think all medical societies should really reflect on their mission. And this obviously is a financial decision. How can they appropriately and uh, you know in a principled way engage with the pharmaceutical industry without being unduly influenced? And so I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think it's disingenuous to suggest that oncologists should not be, uh, you know, going to these fancy dinners, um, but our society should accept millions of dollars from the pharmaceutical industry. So, I mean, that might be a controversial position, but I think there's a disconnect there. But the other thing that is really important to recognize, and I think you alluded to that earlier, as a clinical trialist, if you are a clinical trialist, it, I mean, let's face it, look, it is impossible to do clinical trials without collaborating with pharma. I think, you know, we all know where funding comes from and, you know, the NIH or the, you know, you, you know how the funds flow. And you, you mentioned that, you know, your current research position at least allows you to be critical of that, but your career, research career is not dependent on it. Yeah. How do you, how can you be a clinical trialist without, can you, can you be a clinical trialist without working with pharma? So, uh, Chai, these are really good points. I think let's distinguish relationships with pharma that really are research driven versus maybe consulting or speaking or advisory boards that are not research related. I think they're very different phenomena. I think that uh, you're right. I mean, there's many uh, extremely um, 
uh, you know, successful clinical trialists in our community who have worked for decades with pharma. They've done it in a principled way. They've made major contributions to our field. And I think it would be naive to say that if you're going to run clinical trials, you would never work with pharma. And I think it needs to be done carefully. And I think that um, there's lots of opportunities for uh, appropriate relationships in that space. I, I, I think so. So, so I, I do remember when I decided that I was going to be a health services researcher, not a clinical trials. One of my other mentors, uh, who happened to be a health services researcher, really sat me down and said, "Chris, are you sure you want to do this? Because it means you're going to have to be writing grants to CIHR, which is the Canadian version of NIH." Uh, and it's all it, it, he, in his words, he said, "It would be a lot easier career." to make brand yourself as a trialist and run phase two trials for pharma. And I'm, I'm not trying to denigrate the, the effort and the work involved in running clinical trials. There's a lot of complexities there, so that's an oversimplification, but it's, uh, I think, a bit of an easier career path in some ways to get started on. I think there's a lot more resources there. There's a lot of good work that can be done. There's a whole bunch of trials though, that are probably pretty silly that are being run that just had people CVs and develop careers and perhaps um, provide financial benefits for hospitals and for companies. So I, I think I think the pendulum has swung too far. I think that, you know, really creative clinical trialists, I think the ideal position would be a trialist who engages with industry to run high impact clinical trials that will change uh, patient care, but also has a portfolio of trials that answers other questions that matter to patients but do not matter to pharma. So if I think in my career, you know, I've been practicing as a GI medical oncologist now for almost 15 years, probably the two, you know, greatest innovations in GI oncology from a clinical trials point of view that directly impacted my patients in a huge way were, were trials, first of all, the idea collaborative, right, de-escalating care from six months to three months and reducing the neuropathy, that has, had, that has transformed the lives of many, many, many of my patients much more so than some of the very marginal gains that we, we, uh, we deliver with other new treatments. And the other big one was uh, allowing patients to avoid a lifetime of injections of low molecular weight heparin, like you know shifting to the oral agents. And for oncology, cancer-related VT was also huge. So, um, but there, there's a huge number of clinical trials that can and should be done that don't require pharma funding. But the reality is, is our system is not set up to invest in these trials. And that's a problem with the system, right? Uh, we, we, we don't need to, we, we shouldn't put up with that. How is it possible that we have a society that's willing to spend tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars on new cancer medicines, um, some of which provide large benefit, but many of which arguably add perhaps a few extra weeks of life or months of life at best with a system that puts that much resources into cancer medicines, but it won't invest a fraction of those resources into non-pharmaceutical company clinical trials to understand how can we de-escalate care? How can we give care closer to home? How can we improve communication skills? There's so many other amazing questions that could be addressed by clinical trials, but the system is currently not set up with resources to allow that. So what happens? We're all, you know, the system's addicted to money from the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, let's take, um, choose a disease out there, whichever disease, GI oncology, let's choose colorectal cancer. If you look at the natural progression of treating metastatic colorectal cancer, when I started practice way before you did, and uh, yeah, I mean, I could tell you why when I was doing my training, the questions in GI oncology were, how do you give 5-FU? Uh, Roswell Park or Mayo Regimen or all that stuff. I mean, if I look at where colorectal cancer now, metastatic colorectal cancer now, it is hard for... It, 
it's hard for me to believe that we could have been here today just based on academic research. I can't buy it. I, you know, bevacizumab, uh, I mean, we, we could name, you know, cetuximab, uh, even understanding a lot of these things. It's collaboration. We needed the brains of the academic physicians that really are working, and we need to be able to convince pharma to spend resources and time and money into these, these things. So it's hard for me to believe that today, patients would have been where they are if we did not work with pharma. Um, Chadi, I agree with you and I disagree with you. So this is why this conversation is fun. I completely agree with you. So I'm not suggesting that we, we stop doing trials with pharma. We need them, we need them. Um, but I would argue that our patients today would be doing even better if the pendulum was more in the middle. And so we invested in trials with pharma and resources went there and patients and investigators energy went there, but we didn't overshoot it. And so we also put time, energy and effort and resources into other things like how many additional RCTs do we need of different me to immunotherapy drugs or all these countless phase two or single arm trials that we're doing now that, you know, it's a whole nother conversation, but unfortunately, I believe, unfortunately, those are now being considered the, you know, the pinnacle of evidence. And so we're doing a lot of research that's probably wasted resources. It's not really, we don't even know if it's helping patients and it's duplicative. So I think that um, I, I, I certainly agree with you that there's, there are, they are very important partners, but I think we've overshot the pendulum so far to one extreme. I'm not proposing it goes to the other extreme of no trials with pharma. It needs to be in the middle. Yeah, and I think that that would be probably uh, fair if if you would want to if to be in the middle. The, the problem is that it's just very difficult to, you know, if you wear on the pharma hat, it's very difficult to invest a lot of money and efforts and resources unless there's something for them to gain. Totally agree. You know, they're totally, not. Totally agree. They're not there. I mean, again, I mean, I would say that pharma companies are accountable against their shareholders if they're publicly traded, uh, yeah. you know, and uh, and they have to really think through that as well. But um, yeah, having it in the middle would be great. I just don't think we can. No, but Chatty, I, well, it's not, it wouldn't be easy. And I agree. I, I'm not suggesting that I, I wouldn't expect the pharmaceutical industry to pay for clinical trials that are not going to improve their, their um, revenue stream. But I mean, who are the other major players in this space? You know, uh, you know, payers, governments, right? And so it, it, it boggles my mind that payers in Canada or the US or Europe are willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on therapies. But, you know, because we're so siloed in our system, there's a research division, there's a you know, health system delivery pro program. But you take a fraction of that and reinvest it into clinical trial infrastructure to ask important questions like, uh, can we de-escalate care? Do we need to give immunotherapy forever? Can we give shorter treatment intervals? Ultimately, these questions will actually benefit patients. They're also probably going to save money for the health system. So I think that uh, I agree with you. I, pharmaceutical industry is, is just filling us a void that's been created because other entities are not providing adequate, adequate funds. And that's why we end up with a lot of, you know, silly clinical trials and duplicative research because as junior investigators, you're right. It's way easier to get funded to run a phase two trial or a me too phase three trial than it is to get an operating grant from the NIH or, you know, the MRC or CIHR in Canada. Um, and so if those resources existed, we would have the next generation of talented, young, creative oncologists 
perhaps more interested in running those trials. And then pharma would, would have to focus their efforts on, you know, what is the really top priorities. Right now, they can do trials in anything because the investigators are there, the patients are there. Um, but if the investigators and trials had other resources to answer other questions, then the pharmaceutical landscape, would, I think, would, would perhaps become more efficient as well. How much of this, Chris, is academic culture where you really are rewarded if you have several studies, even phase one or phase two, um, in terms of promotion, in terms of prestige, in terms of being able, you know, getting a getting a couple of phase twos out there uh, in JCO that have never advanced the field have made careers for many people. Um, you know, I mean, not every trial is going to be transformative. And there are many professors out there who have never done anything to change the standard of care. But uh, in order for you to do that, you gotta publish, you gotta get trials, you gotta get something out there. How much of this you feel that the academic culture needs reform? Yeah, I, I agree with you, Chadi. I think um, you know that's why we end up with all these phase two single arm trials when there and you know people say, oh, there's not enough patients to run an RCT. Well, there actually is, but you're right. The incentives right now are much uh, more enticing for someone to run their own phase two trial at one or two centers and get a first author paper in, in GEM Oncology or JCO rather than being contributing and being a middle author on a practice changing RCT. And I think this is a conversation that we need to have as a community. And you're right, the incentives right there do not support the vision that you and I are talking about. And I, and I wish I see a little bit more um, you know, discussion about that because it is really, it, you know, it's really a double-sided thing. And I think that the, um, the culture in academic medicine, publish or perish, as we say, it's, it's really alive and well. And part of this, and I'd like you to reflect on that, um, you know, even from a conflict of interest perspective, if I'm an investigator and I have my own phase two study, you know, um, primary endpoint is response rate. I mean, that's really all and uh, in a particular disease. And I'm trying to consent a patient for that trial. Rest assured that the way I would consent a patient is probably going to be a little bit more leaning towards enrolling that patient in the trial. It is unlikely going to say, well, I don't know if this drug works. Uh, I don't know if this drug is going to have a high response or whatever it is, because if I enroll, I'm going to get the funds, I'm going to get the paper, I'm going to get all of these things. I mean, I call this either financial or non-financial conflict of interest, and, and I don't see that even rarely discussed, to be honest. Oh, I agree. And I mean, I think you know, this, this isn't the case in Canadian centers, as far as I'm aware of, but I've heard colleagues say that, you know, there's centers in the U.S. clearly enrolling patients and opening trials brings in money to the institution. My, my understanding is that there's some places where uh, it also impacts the physician's income for every patient they, that they enroll. Absolutely. So there's, that's a clear, I mean, that, that's, there's big alarm bells there, right? I mean, I think that if, if patients knew that or there was a discussion, there's big alarm bells about that. Um, so I think these conflicts are real. I think that, um, you know, the, again, the research payments, you know, we, we are amongst the most privileged uh, profession in the world, right? We get paid a lot of money and we have uh, an incredible privilege, not just the financial rewards of our job, but the privilege of looking after patients and having work that is so meaningful and fulfilling. Um, and if someone's being paid a full-time salary to be an academic oncologist, I'm not so sure why they would 
necessarily warrant or what the, what the incentives, how they should be set up, that they get extra money for basically doing their job. Um, so, you know, uh, my, one of my mentors when it comes to clinical trials uh, are Ian Tannick and Elizabeth Eisenhower, and they've successfully transformed the care of several different forms of cancer and by leading pivotal trials, but they've always been, you know, really pivotal role models and very principled in the fact that they they do research they do not benefit financially from that um, and uh, the non-research payments they they don't you know they're not involved in that or if, if, if it comes back to them it goes to their institution so I think that's you know an important distinguish is the money for research um, or is it being you know uh, is it a personal payment and so you know this is one of the things we talked about one of the papers we published recently so we use the U.S. open payments database to look at payments for cancer medicines to U.S. oncologists. And we had to look at U.S. oncologists because at least in the United States, you publicly report this. We don't do this yet in Canada, and uh, it's, it's a problem in our system. And when, when our paper was published, you know, I was asked repeatedly by journalists in Canada, well, is this a problem that exists in, in our own country? And I said, undoubtedly, yes, but the fact that I can't answer that is a problem in itself. And so, you know, we had two papers. Uh, the first one published in the Journal of Cancer Policy, you know, reported that about, I think, 85% of U.S. oncologists get payments, non-research payments from uh, the pharmaceutical industry for cancer medicines. The second paper, which was, you know, probably the, the higher profile one, which came out of the Journal of Oncology Practice just a month or two ago, led by one of our residents, Dr. Kristen Wright, we identified the fact that Although payments are very common across um, oncology, the average payment is modest per year in the range of $100 or $200 per year. Uh, but in uh, a small proportion of oncologists, 1% of oncologists are getting paid more than $100,000 per year. And um, that's a lot of money. And I don't know where along that continuum someone's decision making is influenced. If you're getting five cents a year from pharma or $10 or $100, is that really going to change things? I don't know. Uh, but at some point that flips and I suspect well before you get to $100,000, there's going to be clearly uh, subconscious decision making that will be influenced. And so, you know, the, the piece that was published in JOP with a, a real, um, I think, a very, very well written and firm, strongly worded editorial by Mark Retain, uh, was about this being a real problem in our field, you know, getting, you know, and because we, the paper that we described, these doctors, we called them the high flyers, the journal made us change that name, the high flyers getting 150, 200, $300,000 a year from pharma. Uh, when we did detective work, you know, they're leaders in our field, they are writing guidelines, uh, writing I, editorials, and they're leaders. I think that this is obviously a lot of money, nobody can argue with that clearly. But let me give you a provocative thought to reflect on, because I really think about that um, a lot. And um, so this is, let's do, let's do a, a theoretical experiment, a thought experiment, as they call it. So you, you, as a GI oncologist, you believe in a particular drug. Let's say you believe in drug X, which actually works in the disease. You are very convinced it helps your patients. It does actually has shown clinical trials, you know, pick your drug, but you really believe in the drug. You believe it, you've tried it, you like it. It does help your patients. You believe in the trials that led to its approval and you're a proponent of that drug. If I am consulting you and I call you, hey, Chris, what do you think of this drug? You would tell me this is a good drug to use in this indication and you should use it. And there's a drug B that you really don't like. You either view it as too toxic, you either view it as too problematic, you probably think that trials that led to its approval are rather questionable, 
So if I call Chris and say, what do you think of drug B? You'll say, you know, I mean, it's approved, but I really don't buy into it. I think it's a little bit too toxic and too problematic. It is very logical that you are willing to speak for drug A as opposed to drug B. Not because, I mean, again, you do believe in the drug. You like the drug. You've used it. You believe in its benefit. And sure, you're going to make a lot of money by speaking it, but you're not really speaking about a drug that you don't actually believe in. You actually are not kind of selling your soul and you're going and speaking for drug B, despite the fact you don't believe in it, you're willing to really forget that and go and talk about it. The reason I say that is I think most physicians, and again, I may be wrong when they, again, I'm agreeing with you, it's a lot of money, but, but they are not necessarily speaking on behalf or promoting drugs that they don't believe in their clinical benefit. So, you know, I think that that's where I struggle with that because if I'm getting paid to talk about a drug that I totally think it's a dog drug and I'm still talking about it, then I'm obviously clearly doing this for the money. The other, if I'm talking to a drug I believe in, yes, I'm making money, but I actually believe in the clinical value of the drug and I'm willing to promote it and I'm willing to go and tell people about it and I would like them to actually use it because it does help patients. So how do you really differentiate that? I mean, how do you actually differentiate? Of course, if I'm a thought leader in, in uh, acute myeloid leukemia, the acute myeloid leukemia companies are going to ask me to speak, and I'm going to probably speak to a drug or two that I really believe in their clinical utility and value. Are you proposing that physicians are talking on behalf of drugs that they don't actually even believe in their benefits so they can make more money? No, I, I don't think so. I don't think that, uh, you know, fundamentally people are good. Almost everyone in the world are good people. And so I don't think anyone's going to this with any malintent. I do think that it's more nuanced than that. And I think that you're right. If you're a famous leukemia doctor and there's a great leukemia drug, I think speaking about it um, in a venue that is not directed and run by the pharmaceutical industry is entirely appropriate. I think, I mean, and I don't go to these drug dinners and I don't get asked to speak at them anymore because I think people read my $80 hamburger essay and didn't invite me anymore. But I think it's part of the package. It's not just that drug. It's the slides have been prepared by the company. The clinical trials been designed by the company. As you know, Chatty, most of the drugs in our field that are talked about at these dinners and these meetings are, are probably modest in their efficacy. So I, I think that it's, um, it's, it's not specifically related to maybe that one drug at that one talk, but it's part of a larger problem, which is a culture problem. And I think that if there's a great treatment, then experts should be talking about, but ideally they'd be talking about at an educational session at a major meeting and not at something that is funded. And I think we all know that the vast majority of time these slides have been made by another entity. And so I think that's where it becomes problematic. All of these major meetings are sponsored. Like, you yeah, know, yeah. You, go, you go to uh, whatever, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, pick ASCO GI, ASCO GU, ACR, ASCO, ASH, any, I mean, all of these meetings, they're already sponsored either directly or indirectly. You know, the American Society of Hematology, they have the Friday, meeting. they call it Super Friday. Yeah. I don't know if you know that. It's like literally, no, super, no, no. it's Super Friday Satellite Symposia. If you Google... Friday Ash Satellite Symposia, it is about 20 symposiums all day Friday that are all sponsored by Pharma. And it's really, uh, it's how American Society of Hematology um, uh, makes money a little bit on top of the, um, I guess I'm, I'm, 
I guess what I'm trying to allude to, Chris, I'm trying to move to solutions. I, yeah. I, I, buy, I, I, buy, I buy some of the problems you're saying, and I agree with, not with everything, but I would say with mostly everything you said, I'm struggling in the solutions phase. Yeah, I agree. So listen, I, I would say that, um, you know, when, when there's an arm's length financial relationship and there's a pooling of resources, then it's probably less problematic. So let's imagine there's a famous uh, leukemia doctor who's going to talk about a new leukemia drug. In my mind, even though the ASH educational meeting or ASCO annual meeting, it gets a lot of money from, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 different pharma companies, uh, that to me seems less problematic than a dinner at a fancy restaurant that is paid for, funded, scripted, uh, slides made by a single company that make the drug that's being discussed. And so I think and I think there's a continuum there. And you're right, I, I'm not proposing that we have, I, I don't have the solutions to this chat. It, it's really, really complicated. And I think, you know, I would want to make it clear that uh, I'm not proposing that we either cut off pharma and do nothing with them or that I have all the answers. This is really complicated. But I do think it is naive for us to put our head in the sand and imagine it's not a problem. And I think that, you know, patients probably would be uncomfortable if they knew about some of the relationships that were going on. There's also not another, like, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're, you know, we're servants to the public, we're public servants. And if you look at other public officials, uh, some of these behaviors, many of these behaviors would not be tolerated in um, educational spaces and the political sphere. And so I think that, I think our field at least needs to have these discussions um, and, and then collectively move towards some kinds of solutions. Chris, what's your opinion on pharma sponsoring or supporting patient advocacy groups and advocacy societies Leukemia Research Foundation, I don't know, Cure Cancer, you, you could process us too. I mean, you, we could pick, uh, goodness, there are so many. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think uh, I have used some of these foundations to get sometimes uh, transportation to patients, vouchers, all of these things. What's your opinion there? Yeah, listen, I agree. This is complicated, especially if they're providing a service. I, I'm just in the process of writing an essay right now with um, colleagues uh, who live and practice in sub-Saharan Africa about the conflict of interest in that space. And, you know, these are really complicated issues. And so there are programs and opportunities that are provided by pharmaceutical support in every health system that would not exist if that support were not there. So uh, you've raised a really challenging issue. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I, I just think at some point there's a line that's crossed where these programs are, are overstepping. I think this is going to get me in trouble. I think a lot of these pa patient advocacy groups, they have the best of intentions and obviously they want to improve um, things for, for their loved ones and themselves and their community. But I think if they are getting heavily funded by pharma and getting all of their messaging, teaching, promotional materials from the pharmaceutical industry, then they may not have a clear picture uh, or as clear a picture as they might wish about what the relative risks and benefits, pros and cons are of each therapy that they're uh, advocating for. So I think that, you know, I, I do worry for patient advocacy groups that are heavily funded by pharma about, um, you know, I think this is some of the problem that some, this is created as the problem we've fallen into, which is that the typical mantra for many patient advocacy groups is more drugs faster. And, uh, you know, what I think patients really want is more good drugs faster. And so I think there's some really complicated ethical issues there. 
Yeah, I agree. More good drugs. That is agreed. Um, um, you know, one of the things I want to make sure I go back to, you mentioned about sometimes these um, um, slides that are made by the company and um, and uh, uh, during dinners, which are, we call those the on-label talks or speakers. I mean, these are very heavily regulated. They actually have to be reviewed by the FDA and the speakers cannot actually deviate from the slides and the slides usually supposedly there should be actually providing balance between benefit as well as the risk for whatever you're actually showing. So the speakers programs or the actual on-label uh, drug talks as we call them, they're very heavily regulated because you're not really allowed to even talk about anything beyond the labeled indication and the slides have to, had to be approved by compliance as well as by uh, the FDA for FDA labeled indication talks. Can can you see why, I mean, these could be purely just, I'm just telling you, um, you know, this drug is approved by the FDA for this indication at this dose. This is how you use it. This is how you do the side effects, how you manage it, uh, blah, blah, blah. Is that pretty straightforward? You still have concerns about that? Well, I mean, I think there's there's a balance there. There is an educational service that's being provided. But again, I just come back to the fact that, you know, these investments um, influence behavior and lead to increased revenues. And so there, there's a tension there. And I, I don't know what the optimal solution is. Um, and, you know, I, I would I haven't given these scripted talks before. I can imagine it'd be quite uncomfortable. And I, I don't know how easy it is to go back and forth and make um make changes, but I guess that's why I have to come on your podcast to talk about the $80 hamburger, because I can say whatever I want here, Chatty. <laughs> hey, I say whatever I want also. Yeah. I mean, I've been, you know, like, I I mean, I mean I've been always critical. I mean, I, I think that um, you always should be allowed to provide criticism and provide constructive feedback. I think, honestly, I actually think that the pharmaceutical companies are way more open to criticism than the hardcore academic culture. And yeah. try to provide constructive criticism to uh, to somebody who's running the department or running the division and and see what happens. Yeah. Versus, you know, try to provide that and say, you know, about uh, to to farmer. And I think they will they will listen. Let me ask you a quick question. This may be uh, you know a couple of more uh, questions, but one of them is there's a lot about pharma having trials with what folks call suboptimal control arms. And, and some of these control arms that we view suboptimal in America and Canada may be very optimal in Sub-Saharan Africa. And you've been interested in global health. You've done amazing work out globally outside of Canada. And look, I mean, I, I was born in Syria and I can tell you many of these suboptimal control arms will be people who would die in Syria to get access to. So, so um, the, 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 the criticism is that these trials, after they get approved, they don't have, the patients in these countries don't have access to the drug after it gets approved. Uh, the counter argument is, but they at least get access to these drugs if they get enrolled on clinical trials. So you're benefiting maybe one, two, three, 10 patients, and that's better than zero. As somebody who's done global health, um, how do you view this? Uh, is there a line there in the sand that we are we drawing? I mean, um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, Chatty, this is a great question. This is something actually we're working on right now. We have a few uh, studies up and running in this space we call research parachutism. Again, this is being led by my current fellow, Dr. Fidel Rubagamia, who's an oncologist from Rwanda. Um, 
And I actually just listened to your recent interview with our colleagues from Brazil and India about this very issue. So that was, you know, a, a great, great discussion. I uh, can completely relate. Like most of my perspectives come um, from the Indian health system, where I've had the privilege to, uh, you know, to live on sabbatical years ago and, and retain very close friendships and relationships and travel regularly back and forth. Um, and I can imagine a scenario where there's really no good treatment available in health systems around the world and getting access to a control arm that may be substandard in a high income country would be advantageous for that patient. But the, the, the concept of you know, research parasitism or parachutism is that in, from a system point of view, um, these trials do not benefit uh, the lower or middle income country health system because they're taking away potential health system resources uh, and they uh, are identifying drugs that will never be available for future patients in those systems. And they're also potentially harming patients in high income countries because the uh, magnitude of therapeutic benefit is probably being overstated or we don't even know what it is because it was compared to a control that is not relevant in Canada, the US, Sweden or the UK. So I think there is, um, and I think some of our colleagues have done a very good job of identifying this as a problem. And I think at least starting the conversation, again, there's nuance here. There's no straight answer. Uh, but I think recognizing that there is, you know, when you have these massive sums of money at play, uh, there are potential uh, very, very delicate ethical issues that have to be considered on both sides. So again, I guess, like many of the things we've talked about today, Chai, this is not black and white, um, but certainly it's an issue that requires attention. I agree with you. There are a lot of nuances there. I tend to believe, and I rarely, actually on my on the podcast, I rarely offer my own personal opinions because I feel I'm just a moderator. But as somebody who has actually had patients that try to provide consulting services in very low middle income countries, you know, the drugs are just not available. And any way you can get hold of any of these drugs... I think it's a win for even if it's one patient or two patients. And it's pretty, you know, you would think, for example, even the easy drugs that we think are very, you know, you never think of Rituxan, you never think of Herceptin, you never think of Avastin here. And, and there, it could be a rare commodity for some countries. As you know, I mean, you've, you've done a lot of work. And uh, I'm very conflicted about this. I can see how it can help even few patients and I'm okay to tolerate that. And I feel that the solution should be on the FDA level, on the regulatory level. I think that, you know, it, it's, you know, I mean, let's get the low middle income countries help and benefit and maybe reform how we really provide approval for the drugs. So maybe there's a win-win scenario or something. Mm. There might be, I guess, let, let, let's just push back a little bit. So what, why are these trials being done? They're being done almost exclusively to get FDA approval and registration. So uh, the funder or the pharmaceutical company, that's their primary mandate with this trial. And do they happen to provide uh, control arm or care to 5, 10, 20% of patients in a lower income health system that they wouldn't get otherwise, perhaps? And that might be uh, good for those patients. And again, I think maybe these conversations are best had with colleagues, as you did in the last episode, who live and work in these systems who have much greater insight than I do. But I, I guess there's an imbalance because then the upside for that company is massive, right? These are billion dollar upsides 
um, that are based on the fact that we don't even know if the American patients are benefiting. And then because the prices are set so high, there's almost an abdication of ethical responsibility to the health systems that help generate that data in the first place. And so to me, there seems to be a fundamental problem. And so are there a few patients that got some treatment they wouldn't otherwise get? Yes, but the upsides are still so strongly in favor on the other side that, and then there's, you know, all these problems with, you know, protecting patents and evergreening and making the prices so high that they will never be available for patients that I think that, uh, you know, that's why it's called parasitism, right? It's not a bi-directional or, or, or uh, a you know, equally valued relationship. Great points. This is, I, I can't believe it's been an hour. I can talk to you for hours, man. I'm, I'm serious. I love talking to you. And, uh, but I'm not going to let you off the hook without talking social media. This is the fun part of the podcast. So first of all, I'm not going to push you into Twitter because I've actually lost a lot of my interest in it myself. It was very bad for my mental health. Let me tell you so many arguments. But I still think it benefits a lot. I mean, there's a way to collaborate with folks, to uh, interact with people. In fact, I've written a paper with Bishal Gawali before I ever met him. So tell me what your thoughts about social media, because I, you have such a great voice. Honestly, I genuinely say that. And I think a lot of people would benefit from your opinions and ideas if you were on there. Well, thank you for those kind words. Um, you know, it's something I've thought a lot about. Um, and as you say, you know, I, I, I'm not on Twitter. I don't use it. I don't use social media. And fundamentally, it's I, I'm worried about the negative impacts it will have on my life. I already worry that I spend enough time looking at a screen or a phone. Um, I'm worried that, uh, you know, when, when I go home and, you know, I've got four kids and trying to be, you know, present and, and focus on things there, I do worry about uh, being drawn into this because I know I'll get heavily engaged and I'll want to debate and things. On the other side, I completely, um, I'm at a point in my career now where I'm not really interested in just publishing papers for the sake of building my CV and my career. I've, I've, you know, I've done that more, more times than I ever want to. I'm also not interested in publishing papers that like only Bishal and my mother read, right? Like I want to get ideas out there. And I've seen that, you know, Bishal, who's one of my a very close friend and colleague, has been so effective and many others in our field at distributing and disseminating new ideas, pushing the limits by using Twitter to do that. So I, I actually conflicted. And I, I do wonder if, uh, you know, if my mission is to promote uh, you know, cancer care that's high quality and equitable to patients all over the world, uh, maybe this is a step I need to take to try to get some of the, these ideas out there and to try to contribute. So who knows, maybe one day uh, you'll see me on Twitter. I mean, I don't have an account. So the way I, I keep an I keep an eye on a few of my friends to see what kind of, you know, trouble they're causing. I sit down at Google and just type in, you know, Bishal Gawali Twitter. Uh, people, you know what, you know. Even, even Bishal is not as much on Twitter now. Uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of changes happen, honestly. Yeah. Politics and physicians are involved in politics. And I feel Twitter is a, is a, is a good for a few things, but um, it's taken a turn to the worst, in my opinion, compared to before. But think about it. I can always manage your account. I mean, we can always... <laughs> there we go. And, you know, you'll be, you'll be in trouble if I'm the one managing it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Chris, any final thoughts? Uh, anything I should have asked you? Sometimes I, I go on tangents and I may have forgotten something really important you wanted to talk about and I completely over overlooked it. Um, Chadi, no, I, I think we've covered a really wide range of topics. This has been a lot of fun. I guess maybe just to end on a little bit of a note of optimism, and that is that um, 
you know, I'm encouraged with the next generation. And some of it, I think, has actually been fueled by social media. People are willing to speak out about these issues. And I do think that the next generation of oncologists, I hope, will be more mindful of some of the challenges that we've talked about, some of the problems in our field. And I guess just to, um, you know, I hope uh, that through conversations like this, people realize there are alternative career paths in oncology. And, you know, being an advocate uh, for patients and for health systems is one of those roles. And I think that uh, our junior colleagues will hopefully use their creative energy and talents in ways that we've never been able to imagine to address some of the problems that, you know, our, our generation has created and perhaps sustained and, you know, the next generation will hopefully be able to overcome. So I have reason to be hopeful, but uh, I think having these conversations is, is a great way to at least raise the issues and start thinking about solutions. Well, Chris, thank you so much. I can assure you there is no hamburger in the United States of America of that price. You, you know, you, they, they, you overpaid, they overpaid. Uh, I, the most expensive one I paid was $21 and I paid from my own pocket. All right, there we go. And when I get, when I finally get the uh, healthcare and filter t-shirt, <laughs> I'll meet up with you at ASCO and we'll go out for a burger. But anyhow, thanks again, I love that. Thank you yeah. so much, Chris. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. I really appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate you being part of this podcast. Thanks to everyone who continues to support this podcast. And if you are a member of the fan club of Healthcare Unfiltered, reach out to me so I could send you the infamous, famous Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt, which was stolen, by the way, for Chris. So he is getting another one. Wait a minute. Is it possible that he had it and then he told me it was stolen so he could get a second T-shirt? Hmm. I mean, Aaron Goodman, who you know, has a lot of these T-shirts. Um, anyway, I really appreciate your support. I appreciate you letting me know about topics that are of interest to you. Uh, subscribe to the show, refer your friends and colleagues, and uh, always let me know what you think. Before I let you go, I would like to leave you with a quote by Winston Churchill. Attitude is the little thing that makes a big difference. Until next time, take care.